1: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
0: I used to be a nurse, and so I I have a lot of science in my background, and I love, I mean, the more I know about the intricacies of the scientific principles and equations behind all of what we live in all the time, the more in awe I am, the more certain I am that there was a grand designer, there was a holy intelligence, the interweaving of all of it, it just boggles my mind.
1: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not seen radio. That's patreo dot notseenradio slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I'm delighted today to welcome back to the show Barbara Mahaney. She's an author and freelance journalist beloved for her features and writing that appeared in the Chicago Tribune for almost 30 years. She's known for her writing at the intersection of nature, spirituality, interfaith considerations, and family. She's the author of the book Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, which we have discussed here on the show. She lives in the Chicago area with her husband, the Pulitzer Prize winning former Chicago Tribune architecture critic Blair Kamen. They have two sons, Will and Teddy. Today, we're talking about her most recent book, The Book of Nature The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. Barbara Mahaney, welcome back to Things Not Seen.
0: David Dalt, thank you for having me back and big virtual embrace from here.
1: It is always so wonderful when I get a chance to look over your shoulder and watch you be interested in things. And that was so much my experience of reading your book, The Book of Nature, from the first page to the last page. It was just watching you look at the world and say, wow, isn't this neat? And come along with me and I'm going to show you. I'm very excited to share this with my listeners. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with your earlier work and with the conversations that we've already had, I've asked you, if you would, to read a short passage from your book, The Book of Nature, to begin the conversation and orient us to what we're going to be talking about during this hour. If you would, please.
0: Thank you. Mine is a quotidian geography. The undulations of my topography are of the humdrum variety. No sharp chiseled summit, no crags in the rock. I live in the heartland, after all, a landscape long ago steamrolled into equanimity by ice age glaciers that erased most every speck of drama as they receded. Nowadays, the nearest flowing current to my old shingled house is a canal carved out of the prairie, one charged with curbing the flow of direct into the lake, the great Lake Michigan, the one neighborhood landmark worthy of capital letters, the one whose roar I can pick out if I train my ears keenly amid the howlings of incoming wind or winter storm. The woods I call my own are habitat to the holiest of flocks, Wands most often cloaked in iterations of drab. Chickadee, Nuthatch, Sparrow, Siskin. We startle to any dab of color. Blue Jay, Red-headed Flicker, the perennial Cardinal. Word travels fast if barn owls swoop in. Sightings spread with ferocity. We are a people of dial-down expectation.
1: And that's our guest, Barbara Mahaney, reading from her recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. Two things jump out to me immediately upon hearing you read that passage. The first is... You're doing what you've done in works before where it's almost as if you're standing at your back door, your kitchen door, and just looking at your backyard and giving us a list of what you see there in great detail. But then the second thing that leaps out to me immediately is how tasty the language is and how carefully chosen the words are. It is poetic at the same time that it is descriptive. And this comes early in your book. I think that this is a wonderful way to begin this journey with you to help readers and my listeners understand how you're looking at the world in this way that we call the book of nature. And so I just I want to ask you about that paragraph that I had you read. What was the process of bringing it into life? What what was the writing process of that paragraph like?
0: I think at some point in conversations with one of my editors, she might have said something about traveling to the mountains and the desert and the this and the that. And the book of nature I read most closely is just this, you know, and I'm from the heartland. I'm from the edge of Lake Michigan. I'm from the prairie. I'm from a place of non-exclamatory geography. And so uh, I am all about reading closely, and reading closely for me is the woods that are just down the street, the woods that bookend either side of this sanitary canal that I pretend is a river, my own backyard. I've always been big on make-believe, and so I can look at a tiny plot of garden and see all sorts of adventures unfolding. And this is a place, this is this has become a sacred place to me, this home and garden I've lived in for 20 years now. I found something sacred in this old house and the meandering ramshackle gardens that surround it. The animations of the birds I watch so closely, kneeling in the garden, as I say again and again, various places in the book. You know, kneeling in the garden is a, is a form of genuflection. It's the veneration pose. And gardening to me is, I get muddy and dirty. And I very much wanted to center the book in the fact that I live in a really humble geography, a place of drab, a place where Barnell is real excitement. And so I did spend a lot of time walking through one particular patch of woods that I describe in detail. I went there every single day through seasons, through various seasons. And the lake's edge is nearby, and it's always a place I return to for real solitude and real silence and deep contemplative moments. So I just wanted to begin by saying there's nothing extraordinary about where I'm situated. And yet there is so much to be seen and to be felt and to be penetrated by here. And so I begin in the plainest of landscapes and I take it from there.
1: I love that so much. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney. She's been on the show several times before. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. I love how You phrased it just a moment ago that where you live is non-exclamatory geography, and that shows up in the paragraph that you read where the only thing capitalized near you is Lake Michigan. And yet, you say, and yet, even in this very plain landscape, there is so much of creation to delight in, and to note. And that really drives me into the subtitle of your book, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. I think maybe from the beginning of this conversation, some inattentive listeners might think that we're talking about a gardening book, but this is far from that. It's a book about gardens and other things in the natural world, but it's really pointing us towards the supernatural, the spiritual, and I wonder if you could talk about that linkage. What, what are we talking about when we're talking about the book of nature? What is the book of nature pointing us to?
0: The book of nature is pointing us towards the divine, the sacred, God, call it what you want to call it. It's an ancient theology. It's an ancient theology I didn't realize was an ancient theology. So let me tell you the story of how I came to know of it. So I grew up in the woods. I grew up with a mother I have referred to as the original Mother Nature. She famously would have her Kodak movie camera, this was in the 1960s and 70s, out allegedly making home movies of her five children. And we lived in a yard with giant oak trees. And as she was taking her little home movies of the five children, suddenly a scarlet tanager or an indigo bunting would swoop in and most mother abandoning her children to point the camera up in the trees. So the home movies that I grew up with were leafy greens with a little spot of indigo blue or a little spot of scarlet tanager. And, and there was a creek nearby and we spent hours in the creek chasing crawfish and jumping on rocks. And so my whole life had been about being in nature. And I was actually, I was having a radio conversation with a rabbi, Rami Shapiro, shortly after my first book, Slowing Time, came out. And Rami said to me, sort of an aside in the middle of a conversation, He said, slowing time reads like Midrash to the Book of Nature. And I was like, whoa, Midrash, baby. Because, you know, I'm a light-long, Catholic, married to a Jew, an observant Jew. And when, as I write in the book, it's not often that an Irish Catholic gets Midrash pinned to her. And I was pretty proud of that. But I was just, I was stymied and curious by what is this Book of Nature? I could tell the way he said it, that it was capital B, capital N. This was a thing. And I thought, how can I not know of this book of nature? So I got off the radio conversation and quickly Googled it and discovered that it's this ancient theology that, that dates back to the Middle Ages. And it's, what I love about it, I mean, I'm just endlessly curious still about it. It's a subject I don't think I will ever exhaust. It's this profound understanding prescribed to, subscribed to by ancient Israelites, ancient Celts and the Eastern religions and believers and non-believers and transcendentalists. Like you just, I trace it through the ages in the book. And it's this profound understanding that before there was scripture, there was creation. And through creation, God continues To be present to us in infinite ways. There's this palpable presence, and it's in the wordless. The wordlessness, in particular, captures my imagination. In this world we in which words have become such cudgels and such points of divisiveness, I love that no translation is needed. You just plant yourself under the star-stitched sky or in the dune grasses at the lake shore's edge, or on a log in the woods. And it comes to you. It comes to you in the quietude, in the silence. Sometimes it comes to you crash banging and booming. And many of the times in my life when I just felt that bristle at the back of my neck or down my spine and felt brushed by something Vaster and deeper and more magnificent than I could ever imagine. Rushed by God is what I sense it is. Those moments are moments under God's canvas, in God's canvas. And then as I read, I just, this, the writing of this book was an exercise of the deep exercise reading. And I read and I read all of these thinkers and poets and prophets and mystics and monastics who time and time again have pointed toward the sacred in creation. And so I allowed them to be my trail guides and to point me toward seeing in a deeper and a deeper way. And so there's a playfulness in it. You know, I had the sense that God, just wants to share it with us and wants us to see it and delight in it and be curious about it, extract wisdoms from it. And so it's all of that. It's just this magnificent, richly embroidered volume upon volume. That's what the book of nature is to me.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be welcoming back our guest, Barbara Mahaney. She is an author and freelance journalist beloved for her features and writing that appeared for almost 30 years in the Chicago Tribune. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney. She's an author and freelance journalist, beloved for her features and writing that appeared for almost 30 years in the Chicago Tribune. She's known for her writing at the intersection of nature, spirituality, interfaith considerations, and family. And that's very much the subject matter of the book that we're talking about today, her most recent book called The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. Well, I really want to get into the structure of this book, and I was so taken with it because it is in three major parts. We talk about the things that we encounter here on the surface of the earth. We talk about the things that float above us in the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, and then we talk about the liminal space in between. And I kind of want to work backwards through that structure. I want to start with the heavenly things. One of the things that I really like is you are taking each of these objects, these events in turn, but I noticed something. In one chapter you tell us about the moon, and you te- in another chapter you tell us about the stars, but you never tell us about the sun. Instead, you split it out and you, you talk to us about the sun that we encounter right at the start of the day and the sun that we encounter right at the end of the day, and I wanted to ask you about that choice. What was it that led to that choice to begin to split out the sun, not into an object, but instead into these two experiences of dawn and dusk? Oh, so much to say here.
0: So, so dawn and dusk are, for me, just holy hours. I love those liminal moments of the day. Let me back up just a little bit. So it was my editor's idea my editor's input that I told her I was very interested in this whole idea of the book of nature. And so the beginning of the book is a deep dive into this book of nature. What is it? Who's written about it? What is there to know about it? Tracing it through history and into some of its depth and some drawing out some of its important ideas and The next chapter is just about paying sacred attention, which is a spiritual practice. Then if you're going to read the book of nature, you're going to need to read it. You're going to need to pay attention to paying attention. There was a chapter on stillness, but it got left on the cutting room floor. The important thing my editor suggested was she said, you know, what I would like you to do in this book is to draw from 12, take us through your own book of nature. Take us to the pages from your own book of nature that profoundly speak to you. And so I was left to consider what are the places, what are the times that really often wrap me in some sense, where do I have, where's the most voltage in this world as I wander through it, in this book of nature as I wander through it? So I settled upon dividing it into those three sections, the earthly, the heavenly, and the liminal. And then I couldn't write forever. So I had to make choices. And I gathered all these notes and I have reams of notes about the sun. And could have written an essay about the sun and could have written an essay only about night. But the part of that whole complex that affects me the most deeply is the dawn, which is a deeply sacred hour to me. As someone drawing toward bells of quietude, there is no quieter moment, especially when my children were younger and the house would be cacophonies all day long. If I, wanted to, if I wanted to be in quietude, I had to set my alarm early and get up and go outside. And it's just a time of day that enchants me and sets my dials for the day. And similarly, dusk is beautiful. And as one who my husband and I have a deeply Interface marriage, I've completely embraced Judaism and find so much beauty in Judaism. And Judaism, one of the teachings of Judaism is to especially celebrate, especially mark those liminal times when, and here comes a Celtic idea, you know, that the veil between heaven and earth is at its thinnest as the sunlight is fading out and the darkness is fluttering in. And so Jews anoint that time with Shabbat on Friday. You know, you light the candles 18 minutes before sundown. And Shabbat ends with Havdalah when you and you don't end Shabbat until you see three medium sized stars in the heavens. And so dawn. I think through the ages has been a time that people drawn toward holiness seek out. And I think the dusty hour is also a time that captures our attention. So I didn't set out to divide sunshine into morning light and evening light. It just, if I had to choose and I did, I could only have, I have four elements for each of the three sections, a healthy dozen, you know, moon, stars, dawn, dust for the four that I settled upon. And there's so much to say about
1: dawn and dust. What I love about this is, as you've described it, this is your own book of nature. And you were invited by your editor to put into words the very idiosyncratic individual book of nature that you see. But in the process of bringing this in, you're inviting readers to create their own books of nature. To re-
0: Exactly. 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 Yes. You know, and maybe through through this Paradigm I've set out here, and the way I encounter each of the twelve pages with this sort of pulpery of the astonishments of science. I love science. I used to be a nurse, and so I, I have a lot of science in my background. And I love—I mean, the more I know about the intricacies of the scientific principles and equations behind all of what we live in all the time. The more in awe I am, the more certain I am that there was a grand designer, there was a holy intelligence, the interweaving of all of it, it just boggles my mind. And then because I'm a deeply literary person, I also bring in all these wonderful poets and writers and naturalists and thinkers who bring their eloquent, elegant language to. The subjects at hand, and I just mix it all together. And then because I was prompted by the book's line editor to to interact and weave in more personal narrative than I had originally had, there's a real engagement with the ideas of science, the theological ideas, the the poetic and linguistic ideas. So these are the 12s. It's been called a field guide to somebody had once said that slowing time was a field guide to your holiest hours and to the depths of your holiest hours. And and then wrote that the book of nature, this book of nature that I've written is something of a field guide to the depths of your holiest places and times.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Barbara Mahaney, who's been on the show several times before. We're delighted to welcome her back. She is an author and freelance journalist, beloved for her features and writing that appeared in the Chicago Tribune for almost 30 years. And she's the author of the book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. I really love the way that you have been describing this process of interacting with these other texts, interacting with the world outside your door, interacting with your editor and your line editor, and what came to mind as you were describing this entire process. First of all, it's a very organic process. But but it helped me to really get a visual for what is going on here. Sometimes when I teach, I talk about the difference between the scientific forest and the wild forest. And the scientific forest is you've maybe driven past these listeners where you see all the trees in rows, there's no underbrush, it's just trees and ground and everything has its place. And basically every inch of that plot has a kind of economic purpose. You can say what every square foot is, will yield you in terms of profit but maybe you've also walked through the wild forest where you can't tell where one thing stops and another thing starts and everything's growing all over each other but there's such a wonderful sustainable tumultuous order there and when i'm reading your book the book of nature it's like walking through the wild forest now these are my words not yours but when i come up with these distinctions and these images does that feel right to you was writing this like the wild forest
0: I love that. I love that. That's so great. Yes, it's a very wild bunny. It's a very wild forest. It, w- writing this book was such a joy and it was so different from my other four books. But I have thought about how. So I began this project, as I think I mentioned, with deep reading. And first, I needed to know about this book of nature. Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek was a huge North Star for me. I'm pretty sure I began with Annie Dillard, and I followed for eight months what I call the rabbit hole school of reading or the Russian doll school of reading. You know, one title led to another. If I was reading an author I loved and they mentioned either a title or another writer from another century or another millennia... I then scribbled that name on my reading list and ran to the library or bought far too many books. By the end of my eight months, I had literally like 200 books stacked around my little office, which used to be the garage of this old house. And it's now my writing room. And so I had these vertical stacks in my house, like it was a dangerous room to walk in. Because they could have crushed me at any point. So I read and read. And I've always been sort of a meticulous note taker. So I was making notes from each book as I was writing it. I was cataloging those notes. I was then cross-referencing all of those notes. I was then compiling them into these maybe chapters I was thinking of writing. And then once I decided on the 12 pages from my book of nature that I was going to write about, it was very much an exercise in wild foresting. Let us now call it not interweaving, but wild foresting. It is a new verb. Thank you, David Dull for introducing it to the lexicon. Yes, I wild forested and I, I cross pollinated here, there and everywhere. And some of my favorite writers, similarly, I've also, I knew what I was going to say. So what I realized in these 200 books and authors I was reading and taking careful notes on, when I was a journalist at the Chicago Tribune and I did everything from investigative series to a 10-part series on Hunger in America, the most important thing to a journalist are the sources you turn to, who are the truth tellers, who you try to get them to tell you the accurate version of what happened, and the documents you turn to. So for this book, rather than interviewing live sources, my sources were the authors of all these books I was reading. So in some ways, the creation of this book was very much was journalistic in style and that I was meaning on all these sources I brought to the table. The true joy, and I think you totally hit on it, was the wild foresting piece of it. And letting the science rub up against the poet, rub up against the philosopher, rub up against my own little personal anecdote. Why was it that one time I ran to the water's edge? Why, why was the lake a place I turned when I had tears without end? You know, what have I buried in my garden? You know, what sorrows have I buried in my garden? What, what triumphs have burst there or bloomed there, I should say?
1: What I love about this is as we're talking about the wild foresting, so you've got all of these different texts that are weaving into the text of your life, but also, and you've already talked about this in your own family, but it shows up in every sort of stitch of the tapestry of this book, you're also weaving together a wild forest of faiths, because it's not a Christian thing to read the book of nature, it's not a Jewish thing, it's not a Muslim thing, it's not a Hindu thing. You find the book of nature through all of these different traditions, and you see it almost as, and again, this is going to be my word, so feel free to pick a better one, but the connective tissue or the loam, if you will, that sort of is stretching between all these different branches, all these different trunks. Talk to me about this connective tissue and the way that you also overlapped all these different faiths in the writing of this book.
0: Well, again, David, oh, you're such a good reader. You hit on such an important idea to me, which is I am an avowed ecumenicist. I was born and raised my Catholic education began from the beginning. But I happened to be in second grade and making my first communion and first confession immediately post-Vatican II. And actually thought that they changed it to English language so we, the little first communicants, would understand what was happening. And I was raised by these wonderful sisters of Loretta who were probably among... The early brigade of those whipping off their habits, wearing shorts, changing their names from their sister Michael Joseph, whatever, to sister Joanne. And they were smoking cigarettes behind the convent and they were playing kumbaya on their folk guitar and showing us the red balloon for religion class. And I embraced my liberal Catholic roots and was always curious about. Judaism and had lots and lots of friends in high school who were Jewish. And I remember asking one of my friends, my freshman year of high school, if I could come to a Seder at her house. And she said, we don't do Seder. Seder is the Passover sacred meal. Right. So they did a Seder for me because I was curious. And then I ended up marrying my beloved Jewish husband. And we were An interesting couple from the get-go because both of us have always taken our religion so seriously and in deeply. And so after much discussion, we decided to, we would marry and we would raise our children in both religions. Chicago happens to be the forefront, was way ahead of the curve in terms of Jewish Catholic relations. So there was already a group here who had formed a Sunday school called the family school in which children Parents are the teachers and children learn their Judaism and they learn their Catholicism and they learn what the common threads and they learn what's distinct and very different. And I love Judaism and just have embraced it wholly. The older and more I live, the more emphatically I want to break down the walls between religions and any path to God is a path that has wisdom to offer. And I am with palms wide open, accepting those wisdoms and seeking them out. And so more than ever, I think one of the most important and beautiful things about the book of nature is that there are no words nor dogmas to divide us. There is only sensory experience to draw us in and to speak to
1: all of us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Barbara Mahaney. She's an author and freelance journalist beloved for her features and writing that appeared for nearly 30 years in the Chicago Tribune. She's known for writing at the intersection of nature, spirituality, interfaith considerations, and family. She's the author of the book Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door. Today we're talking about her most recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking to Barbara Mahaney. She's been on the show before, and we're glad to have her back. Barbara Mahaney is an author and freelance journalist beloved for her features and writing that appeared for nearly 30 years in the Chicago Tribune. She's the author of the book Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, which we've discussed here on the show before. Today we're talking about her most recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty of God's First Sacred Text. Before the break, we were talking about the structure of the book and how we take it in the earthly things, the heavenly things, and the things in between. But then at the end of the book, I was struck that there is this turn towards lament. And lament is a very particular religious word. It's not exactly sorrow. It's not exactly sadness. It's more It mixes up sorrow and sadness, but also nostalgia and hope all are part of lament. And the way that I took that section is we've spent the entirety looking at this beautiful book of nature, and now humanity has begun ripping pages out of the book. And the sense of loss and the sense of what could be is palpable in that last section. So I'd just like to invite you to talk to us about the lament that you're describing here in the last part of your book, the book of nature.
0: Well, Yes. Again, an important point. The lament, the piercingest element of la- the lament is if you followed along in the beginning of the book, if you come to understand, if you even glimpse that there is something in all of creation, in all of nature, that is not just pretty, that is not just powerful, but that is the fingerprint of the divine, that if the sacred is just beneath, the surface, just waiting for our attention, then there's this really profound extra layer of loss that comes with the devastations of this earth and the heavens. If we are bulldozing the meadow, if we are setting the forests on fire, if we are dumping toxins into the rivers or the streams that flow into the rivers, whichever way we're doing it, what we're losing, what we're cutting off, is channel to God, the channel to the divine. And that matters a lot. I didn't, though, want to turn the whole book into a climate crisis book. But in situating it in this end note of lament, after hopefully I've carried you through and held up this kaleidoscope of wonders and astonishments and curiosities and sometimes profound questions, if you maybe bought in to the idea that there's something here, then it just adds this particular urgency to the notion that there is not only earthly devastation, there is sacred devastation. And we are pummeling this one profound, timeless way that God reaches out to us. And so I hope to make that point there. I wanted to just drive it home and make clear that among the losses, these intangible, it's not just beauty, it's not just intimacy, it's not just, there's something, you know, the ineffable sacred. And we stand to lose it. And we stand to move ourselves closer and closer to some version of digitized Ottoman or something. If our only inputs most of the day are the pings from our phone and the images
1: behind glass on our screens. I know that you think and talk a lot about your two sons, Will and Teddy, and they're older than my, our two kids, Maggie and Beckett, here in our house. But I think in both cases, when I'm talking to my children, and I imagine when you're talking to your children, I want to reference certain things that were evident and prevalent in my childhood, like being able to walk out my back door and seeing the Milky Way. And we now live in Chicago and my kids have rarely ever seen the stars. And that's just one small example of the things that I remember being part of my world that now are only things that I can tell in stories because I can't show my kids. And I wonder about that dynamic with you as you're watching these things fall away, how you think about the world that your two sons are entering into and helping to shape. How do you take this wisdom and begin to project it towards the future? What what are your hopes and also what are your fears in this moment?
0: Mm. Important question. My fears are that it will just continue to be wanted away. My faith is that I do believe creation and the elements of the natural world, many of which, you know, I write about here are big enough and deep enough that the way the human spirit is wired, designed, the natural can't help but speak to our souls or whatever is that ineffable thing inside us that responds to the sacred. I know both of my own boys, even though they didn't grow up with a creek across the way or woods across the way as I had. I know both of them in their own way have had moments where they were deeply struck by this wordlessness that comes to you, whether it's in the woods or on a river. And so I know they know it. And I think once you know it, you then maybe have a sense of hunger for it and work to seek it out. If I ever have little grandchildren, I promise you, I will take them by the hand into the woods and we will sit on logs. I did do that with my boys and moving to this old house. And I've gone to the beach for sunrise with both of them. You know, I never like, stuffed it down their throats, but it's just a natural part of the way we are. And I have seen them respond to it. And so one is just recently out of law school and about to become a law professor and specifically chose that lifestyle because he hopes for an interweaving of quietude and cacophony. And the younger one is just finishing college. So the last few years for them have not been ones that necessarily give them lots of opportunity, but even the, the, the college kid, I've, I've, I've heard him talk about going out for walks at night and he doesn't need to say more. And my heart just responds to that because I know he's seeking something that can only be found, you know, under a star-stitched night in the quiet, maybe an owl hooting, who knows. So my hope is as the years, as they move into the next chapters of their lives, they might find ways to bring it in more regularly. And if there are little people, if there is the next generation, I assure you, I will be immersing them as fully as possible.
1: and i'm struck by the hopefulness of your response here and it, there, it, i'm not even quite sure how to ask this next question so in some readings of christianity there is a kind of dominion over the earth go out and subdue this natural creation for our benefit so that's one thing that we're to master creation and and anything that we do is justified because we've been told that it's justified there's another reading of christianity that says we've messed all this up and now we're going to pay the price What I'm hearing in your answer is neither of those two poles. And I almost want to say it this way. It is clear from this section in Lament that we have harmed the earth and harmed this book of nature. But I also hear you saying, and yet we still have a place here, and nature and God are forgiving us and allowing us to try and to try again and to make it right. Now, as I say this back to you, do you hear echoes of your own intention here or would you say all of this in a different way?
0: I guess one of the miracles here is the miracle of scale. It can be you, I can feel as profoundly touched by a tiny, small thing by a downed baby bird whose heart I can still see pounding, 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 and whose rescue I sense is incumbent on me to put it in my palms, to lift it carefully into a box, to feed it with an eyedropper until perhaps it regains enough sustenance to take off again. It can be in the blossoming of, you know, a flower and a vine long after it should have been blooming. And so the surprise of it captures your attention and can delight you. And it also sometimes can be on the grandest scale when you feel so small and just have this overwhelming sense of our tiny place against this vast creation of this creator. So I don't think our encounters can ever be extinguished. I think we might be chopping off limbs here and there, and that saddens me deeply. I know there are really smart people working to push back against some of the devastations. So there's hope there. I think one of the beauties of nature is that it just won't be muffled. It won't be squelched. It's almost like a tide. It just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. It keeps trying to find a rivulet in. And it does. But we have to position ourselves into a posture of openness. We can't be numb and can't be blind to all that is whirling around
1: us all the time trying to find a way in. Does that answer your question? It does. And one of the most striking examples of this from your writing in the Book of Nature Is this image that you give us after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and after a a fire that sweeps through London, there are seeds that were buried in the bricks and they begin to burst forth with new life. It's, It's almost like life will not be denied. But I wonder if you could talk about those images.
0: Exactly. Oh, my God. The I quote at length from John Hersey's brilliant New Yorker essay published exactly one year after Hiroshima, in which he went and took just detailed notes and he writes it in language I could never touch. And so I let him do the talking and he talks about, you know, scientists and all these people said this is going to be a dead zone forever. And over time, in the months following, these red canna just emerged from the scorched earth. And in London, after the great fire, the just like the carpets of, I can't remember what the flower was. I remember it was yellow, but I can't remember what it was. That is exactly the parable that the Book of Nature is continually offering out of the midst of devastation there comes not just life but beauty and it won't be squelched and it's resilient and it rises up i mean just you know you and i are talking as winter is maybe maybe coming to a close and already after a bleak winter If you go out and look carefully at the ground, you'll start to see these, you know, ever hopeful, resilient little nubs of bright green earth, you know, the stems rising. And again, I have a whole chapter on the earth's turning because the seasons to me are just this sort of constant wheeling of, of hope and faith. And at the moment you think you can't take one more minute of it here comes the sun, here comes the springtime bloom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it just, it's as if all the turning of the earth and the heavens is just, it won't give up. It won't stop reminding us and presenting us with these beautiful parables from which we can and should derive insights and intelligence and
1: wisdoms. And In your book, The Book of Nature, you're inviting us as humans to learn better to read this text. And let's use text as broadly as we can here. Is it safe to say that if we learn to read it better, we will learn to care better for this common home that we're in?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. To notice it, to see what its capacities are. I believe that human beings are wired with compassion. I'm going to Believe that till the day I die, and and it's not just because I was a nurse and that I think that. How can you not care for something that you love? How can you not work towards the protection of something that offers you tender beauties, quiet beauties, sometimes heartbreak? It, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. There's there's a relationship, and the more we pay attention the more connected we are to it and the more connected to it, the better stewards we must become.
1: Well, Barbara Mahaney, Every single time I get a chance to talk with you, it is a delight for me. And it was a delight reading this new book of yours, the book of nature. I already know friends I'm going to share it with because, again, it resonates so strongly with exactly what you're saying—to delight in the world and to learn to care for the world better. Thank you so much for the time and the thought that went into the crafting of this book. But thank you especially for talking about it with me and my listeners.
0: Thank you, dear David Dalton. What a joy and a blessing you are.
1: We've been speaking today with Barbara Mahaney. She's an author and freelance journalist, beloved for her features and writing that appeared for nearly 30 years in the Chicago Tribune. She is known for her writing at the intersection of nature, spirituality, interfaith considerations, and family. She's the author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, which we have discussed here on the show in the past. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, The Book of Nature, The Astonishing Beauty... not seen is produced by sandberg media llc we're distributed nationally by prx the public radio exchange today's show was recorded at the william adams studios in beautiful hyde park here on the south side of chicago illinois our theme music is composed by gene keeja our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on patreon you can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com notseenradio radio